You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Hey, well, good morning. It's great to see you today. Uh, the, the song we just sang, uh, His Mercy is More, um, that, that song was written by John Newton. It came from a line out of a letter that he wrote in 1767. Um, we know John Newton. He's most famous for the uh, hymn, uh, Amazing Grace. He also, though, after he took his pastorate, after he wrote that song, and um, he took a pastorate, he wrote letters Uh, volumes of letters, and he wrote most to believers who would write to him um, as they struggled with um, living the Christian life. There were a lot of people that would write Newton and say, listen, I'm really struggling. I'm I'm struggling with sin. I'm struggling with with understanding grace. I'm struggling with um, believing that God loves me. And so what Newton did was he wrote lots and lots of letters. He wrote theology to people about um, their standing with Christ and, and that their righteousness was in Christ. And so this came from one of those letters that he wrote in 1767 because Newton himself was overwhelmed with God's amazing grace. He never got over it. I'll tell you a little story, though, about this amazing grace, if you're interested. He, um, it, it's actually a line that comes from um, our passage this morning, Galatians 1.15, but it comes by way of Martin Luther's commentary, by way of a man a generation before Newton, John Bunyan. I'll tell you how it works out. A generation before that, John Bunyan, the guy that wrote Pilgrim's Progress, one of the most famous books ever written. It it went into print. uh, He published it 1678, it has never been out of print since. He wrote it while he was imprisoned, imprisoned for preaching the gospel. Bunyan came to faith reading Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. In fact, Bunyan will say about Galatians' commentary, Luther's commentary, he said, listen, God was so gracious to bring to me, by however he brought it to me, an old copy of Luther's book, his comments on Galatians, it was so tattered that if I turned it over the wrong way, it would fall apart. And in fact, besides the Bible, it was my favorite book I ever had. I I found my condition in his experience so largely, so profoundly, it's as though my, uh, he had written it out of my heart. He said, never found one more fit for a wounded conscience. So he was reading this commentary, he was reading Galatians, he was struggling with, with understanding grace, and he's walking through a field one day and he says this. Listen to, listen to how Bunyan puts it, and then I'll tie it into Newton. Here we go. He says, one day, as I was passing in the field, and that too with some dashes on my conscience, fearing yet that I was not right, suddenly this sentence fell on my soul. My righteousness is in heaven. And then I thought... I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand, there. And I said, there's my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, 
God could not say of me that he lacks my righteousness, for that was always before him. And then I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made me righteous, or better yet, it was not my bad frame that made my righteousness worse, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the, yet, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then my chains fell off my legs, and I was loosed from my afflictions and irons, and my temptations fled away, and I ran home. And great. He was free. Grace had freed him. He goes on to say, where Paul says here in Galatians 1.15, that God, where God had called him by his grace, Luther calls it amazing grace. That's what Luther had read, written about it in his, the old copy that Bunyan had. Bunyan speaks of hearing the call of amazing grace, to which Newton would later write, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And now you know the rest of the story. Isn't that great? The ripple effects of Paul's letter to the Galatians still continues to bless the church generations, centuries later. And that's where I want to begin reading. Galatians 1.15, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter. Here's what Paul writes. He says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and he who called me by his grace... His amazing grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw no one other, uh, none of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, which is Tarsus, that's his hometown. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. They glorified God because of me. What Paul's doing here, he began in verse 11. He's going to continue to do it all the way to, to end of chapter 2, verse 10. He, he's spending about a fourth of this letter to the Galatians, and he's writing kind of an autobiography. He's telling the Galatians about his conversion and what happened after his conversion. An entire fourth of this letter to the Galatians these Galatians who the Judaizers have come in and they've been trying to kill the message of grace. They've been trying to say, listen, Jesus isn't all you need. You need Jesus plus something else. That's what Clint talked about last week. If you didn't hear it, go download it. It's excellent. Listen, Jesus is a great start, but you, you need to add some things. You need to add circumcision and the law and church attendance and Bible study. and Go to the potluck, and if you don't go to the picnic, you're not in. There's more to it. It can't just be grace. And Paul says, no, it is grace. I'm telling you. Because I was one of the good guys. In fact, those Judaizers that are coming in, I was better than they were. 
I was the best there was. In fact, Luke records the whole thing in Acts chapter 9. Paul, I'll tell you a little bit about him. He was from Tarsus. Tarsus was the leading center in the day. It, was, it had the Ivy League school in its day. Paul grew up and spoke four languages. His father was a Roman citizen. He had inherited a Roman citizenship. He was a man of three cultures. He was Greek, he was Roman, and he was a Jew by birth. Paul had educational aspirations. At age 13, he went to Jerusalem to live with his sister. He studied under Gamaliel. He was the leading rabbi in the Jewish world at the day. He studied at his feet. He became an expert in Judaism. He rose to the top of his ranks. From the age of 13 to about the age of 30, which is where he is at the beginning of Acts chapter 9. He made a name for himself. If you were in Jerusalem, you would have known who Paul was. He would have spent his days reading the Hebrew scriptures and writing commentary and briefs. His zeal for the law. I can imagine him one day walking to his sister's house or from his sister's house arguing some fine point of, of the Old Testament with his peers. Thinking, this is what I was made for. Passing the temple, saying something like, God, I'm going to make you so proud. I'm going to surpass you in Gamaliel. There's no evidence that, that Paul ever knew Jesus in his lifetime. Jesus lived in Galilee up north. Jesus and his ragtag group of guys, they, they came down. We know from Jesus' ministry to Jerusalem three times. We don't know that Paul and Jesus ever interacted. Paul was likely in Jerusalem during the events of the arrest, the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection. Probably was not involved, but afterwards... When all the disturbances of the Jesus followers, when the way began to, to make a disruption, Paul was very much involved because he was there in Acts chapter 8 at Stephen's stoning, just before we get to Acts chapter 9. In fact, he's there. He's overseeing the stoning, the first martyrdom of the first believer on behalf of Jesus. He's there. And so he goes, even though Gamaliel... His mentor said, listen, leave these people alone. Leave them alone. Paul smells opportunity in the air, and he goes to the high priest, the one that had sentenced Jesus to death with a plan, with a crusade. He says, give me some legal papers, and I'll go out to the far reaches. I'll head up to Damascus, and I will go stamp them out. I will go bring them to justice. I will go in the name of God. And this group called the way, I'll get rid of them. The high priest was all too happy to let this young zealot go and do his dirty work. And so in Acts chapter 9, what Paul's talking about here in Galatians chapter 1, 15 and 16 and 17, Paul heads out with legal documents in hand and a zeal for God in his heart to Damascus 
to persecute and murder followers of Jesus. And he gets way more than he bargains for. He had a calling. But it wasn't the call of amazing grace. He sets out on the road, and Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, he knew about the crucifixion, but here he encounters the resurrection. And the resurrected Jesus shows up and stops him dead in his tracks. He falls on the ground, and this man who had everything is stripped of all that he had. And is laid bare before Jesus. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And is blinded and left helpless. Jesus takes a self-sufficient, self-righteous, self-competent, super capable, good person and overwhelms him with grace. And lovingly wounds him. Brings him to the end of all of his resources. And all of his strength. And even blinds him so he has to be led by the hand. And in weakness, he's going to end up bringing Paul to the doorstep of the church. Jesus is going to find a guy named Ananias. A believer in Damascus. A believer in Damascus. The place Paul was going to to persecute. And says, hey... Ananias, I got this guy named Saul. You heard of him? Oh, yeah, we heard of him. He was coming again. Here's what I want you to do. I blinded him. And uh, I want you to go get him. Huh? Yeah. He's mine now. I want you to lay hands on him so his sight's restored. And I want you to comfort him. And I want you to give him something to eat. And I want you to care for him. That Paul would write later to the Corinthians. He'd say, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Paul experienced God's pleasure, which is what he was after. Not in his actions to prove to God how good he could be, how zealous he could be, how righteous he could be. Paul was trying to get to God on his own terms to prove how worthy he was. Galatians 1.16 here says, God's pleasure came not from what Paul had done, but from revealing who Jesus was and what Jesus had done to Paul. And Paul was changed. Luke goes on to tell the story. He goes into a synagogue. He begins to proclaim Jesus. He's the Son of God, and there are few people converted, and most people are skeptical, and he is let out of a basket and runs to Arabia, although Luke doesn't include that, and that's okay. Paul does. We find out from Paul later in Galatians that Arabia is actually Mount Sinai. I'll talk about that in a second. Spends three years there. After three years there, then what he tells us is in this little bit here in Galatians that he goes to Jerusalem, he meets with Peter, spends 15 days, he also meets with James. And then after that, 
It's almost as though he vanishes into obscurity. Goes back home to Tarsus. Makes tents. And nobody hears from him. They get wind here and there that he's preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. And it's not until about 10 to 14 years later, the timeline's a little weird, that Barnabas in Acts chapter 11 will go and find Paul and bring him back because the church will need him. He left for Damascus on a mission. And he leaves with his life absolutely changed and transformed. And his life's different. And I want to talk about that for a second. You see, because... Paul's conversion, I think he spends so much time telling the Galatians about it because it messes with our categories for a second. See, what I think Paul's doing is I think he's reminding the Galatians what it looks like when a good person gets saved. See, there's two kinds of people. See, there's the kind of person that thinks, you know, listen, I'm so bad. I'm so, I'm so bad. You, you don't know what I've done. Man, I've done so much. There's no way that I can come to God. Man, I have fallen so far. I have done so much. There is no way that I could ever come to God. That's one kind of person. There's another kind of person that says, surely, surely my good is greater than my sin. In other words, I'm not that bad. See, see, we think of saved or con converted or those that, 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 that need to be saved as bad people. I mean, at the very least, we have a category for them. We, we know their testimonies. We've judged their lives. We've had pity on them. We imagine where they live, how they raise their kids. We, I mean, we, we think, well, I know what they do on the weekends, the rules they break, the shows they watch, the words they say, the jokes they tell, the clothes they wear, the people they date. The bad people need Jesus. They're the ones that need to be saved. Or maybe it's what they believe or don't believe. I mean, they don't go to church. They don't know the language. They, they cross the lines. They read the wrong books. They see the wrong movies. They have the wrong political views. They, they're the bad people. They need Jesus. They need to be saved. But Paul's testimony messes with good, with good church folk. Because I want to be, go ahead and be honest with you from the beginning. His testimony is this. I was a good person. And I never missed. And I knew it all. And I was too good for my own good. That's Paul's testimony. See, the one who's really sinful, who's really broken, who's at the end of their rope, 
the one who's come face to face with the holiness of God, what that person needs to be convinced of is that God's grace is greater than their sin, like, like the song we sang. His mercy is more. Our sins are many. His mercy is more. That's one kind of person the grace of Jesus encounters. The, the, the other kind, well, you see that. You, you see that in Luke chapter 7. Luke tells the, the story, the scene where Jesus, the, the woman uh, that anoints Jesus at Bethany, Jesus is the home of the Pharisee. The Pharisee, by the way, is the good person. He's a religious person. He invites Jesus to his home. And then it enters the scene. It says, a woman of the city who's described, it says it this way, a woman of the city who was a sinner. And she comes in. She's weeping. She wets Jesus' feet with her tears. She wipes his feet with her hair. She anoints them with oil. And then the text tells us that the Pharisee, the good person, the religious person, he's having this inner dialogue. And he says, what in the world? I mean, I thought Jesus was a holy man. I thought he was a prophet. I mean, he thought he was some kind of a big deal. I mean, I'm having small group in my home with Jesus. Doesn't he know she's a sinner? And he's letting her touch him? And Jesus knows this is going on. And so he says, hey, Simon, which is the Pharisee's name, I want to tell you something. So he tells him a parable, a story. He says, there's two people in debt. One person owes a lot. One person owes a little. Both debts get canceled. Who's more grateful? And the Pharisee says, well, I guess the, the one who owed the most. And Jesus says, hey, you're right about that. Then he says this, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. His point is she encountered grace. Her sins are forgiven. And then you know what he said to her? Your faith has saved you. She encountered the amazing grace of Jesus. You know what he said to the Pharisee? Came in here, you didn't show me any hospitality. You didn't even care that I was here. You're too good for your own good. Go a few chapters later, Luke 18, Luke tells another story. Jesus encounters a, a rich young ruler. This guy comes and says to Jesus, Hey, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's about 20 things wrong with that question. Tell me what to do. I'm ready. Lay it on me. Jesus says, well, Why do you call me good? No one's good except for God. But okay, keep the commandments. And he gives them the commandments. To which the rich young ruler says, well, I, I've done all that. I've kept them from my youth. Here's problem number one. We don't inherit anything from what we do. It's not how inheritance works. Inheritance is the consequence of what someone else has done, not what we've done. That's problem number one. Here's problem number two. Jesus answered, no one's good except for God. Yet the rich young ruler, in essence, says to Jesus, oh, well, I'm good too then. See, ultimately, what Jesus does is he'll tell the rich young ruler, give it all up. Follow me. 
Exchange your control for dependence. Exchange your strength for weakness. Stop trusting in yourself and trust in me. And he won't do it. Goes away sad. So Jesus says, you know what? For the rich, it's like camel going through the eye of a needle. It's about more than money, by the way. About more than money. It's about the impossibility to be saved by human activity. And the disciples get the point. So they say, well, Jesus, who can be saved? And he says, nobody. It's impossible. With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In other words, only God can save. You know, Paul, I think, wants them to know the danger here. It's a warning. You can be too good for your own good. How do you know? Well, here's one thing. If you're interested in only what you need to do and what needs to be done, but you're not interested in, what's, in knowing what's broken, in the brokenness that you can't fix, if you are constantly living in the denial of your weakness and the fear of being exposed, of trying to outrun Not being caught. See, I think there are a number of people that actually offer up a morality to God as kind of a sacrifice, an appeasement to God in hopes that He'll keep His distance. Man, if I can just keep the scale, just a little tip, if I can just do a little more good than my bad, if I can just offer this up as, a, as an appeasement, if I can just kind of keep God at bay with my sacrifices of good, maybe He'll leave me alone. Too good for your own good. Here's another one. When confronted with the law, with, with the requirements of God's holiness, what's your response? We're too good for our own good, for, for God's grace. If our response is like the rich young ruler, well, I can do that. I've, I've done that. I, I'm good too. See, see God's law, His, His holiness... I mean, it ought to bring us to a place of humility, not pride. If confidence in our goodness arises, then it reveals we don't really understand who God is. It reveals we don't understand what Jesus has done. It reveals that we don't understand what grace really offers. It reveals we don't understand the depth of our sin. We don't understand the separation that sin has created. Here's the reality. There are no good people. That's the lie. 
there aren't there aren't any. See, we think there's good people and bad people. You know what the Bible says? There's people and there's Jesus. That's the category. See, it may be this morning that God's wooing and drawing and wanting you to hear that forgiveness and mercy has been made available to you and Jesus this morning. I pray that's the case. It may be that God's drawing you in a different way this morning. Maybe you came here this morning on a mission to add to your goodness, to do a little turning of your life around, to, to do your part. Instead, maybe you find the Holy Spirit of God wrecking all that. I hope so. Maybe he's crashing you into Jesus. Maybe you feel a little laid bare this morning. It's okay. You can rest in that. So here's what happens when you're saved. The, the Bible says you're justified. Justification. It's what Jesus accomplishes for you by dying on the cross and being resurrected. See, on the cross, he took your sins and paid for them by dying your death. Paid in full. There's no double jeopardy. They're, they're paid for. No, no other payment ever has to be required. You're declared righteous. You're right with God. That, that is what Jesus is, and you're given the very same status as Jesus. And then God in his grace opens your eyes so you're able to see it and understand it and, and receive it, to, to, to believe it. That's faith. And when the gospel comes to us, the, the good news comes to us and begins to draw us to Jesus, we may hardly be able to believe it. You may say, well, I, I, I believe it. Help my unbelief. Grace comes to a heart that's spent a lifetime trying to be more lovable. You hear the word of the gospel say, I love you. You may go, oh, that's too good to be true. It is true. It is. See, what happens when you're justified? You're also raised to new life. See, spiritually, a, a death and a resurrection have taken place. The end of chapter 2 in Galatians, we'll get to it in a couple of weeks. Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ in me. Suddenly, where there was nothing, there is something. Where there is nothing, now there's life. Maybe that's stirring in you this morning. It's grace. God does it all in His Son, Jesus. We receive it in faith. That's why Paul says it the way he does. God set me apart. He called me by His grace. He was pleased to reveal His Son to me. Maybe, maybe you're experiencing that. Maybe this morning you're a believer and you've just forgotten why God loves you. 
You've forgotten your beloved child. You, your son, your, his daughter. Maybe you slipped in this morning. You somewhere slipped into a part-time employee role. Constantly terrified. You're being evaluated. And God's your boss and he's always mad. Slipped into trying to prove your worth to him and you made your sanctification the barometer of your love, of his love towards you. Listen, you can stop that this morning. Remember again the gospel. Remember again, like Paul does. Remember when you first believed. Remember the season that you came to faith. See, three miracles happen, I think Paul shows us, when a good person gets saved. It's remarkable. Look at verse 17. I didn't go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. I went away to Arabia. In Galatians 4, verse 25, he says, Arabia is Mount Sinai. You know what happened at Mount Sinai? God gave Israel the law at Mount Sinai. The place of the giving of the law. I think Paul went there for three years. And I think... He spent time communing with Jesus in prayer and meditation and the study of Scripture. And I think he came to see clearly that though the law was holy and good and perfect, that he himself was not. And I think he began to see as he began in Genesis and went all the way to the end. Oh, oh it was there all the time. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed and the Lord credited to Abraham as righteousness. And then page after page after page that the Lord is our righteousness. And he began to see the mystery revealed and it was fulfilled in Jesus. And it was there all along. And Paul began to see, oh, it's not my righteousness. It's Jesus' righteousness. And his hope was no longer in the law. It began to be transferred to the gospel. Faith in the gospel. Faith in Jesus. And over and over again, he began to write to church after church after church. It is not what you have done or what you will ever do. Your righteousness is Jesus. It's Jesus. And I don't care if an angel comes and preaches you a different gospel. That never changes. Your hope is not in the law. The law can't change you. Jesus changes you. And that's a miracle for a good person right there. That's a miracle that a good person would transform their hope from the law to faith in the gospel. Second miracle that takes place, look at 18 through 22, where he says, hey, I went to see Peter in Jerusalem, and then I went to obscurity. 
I went to a place and nobody knew where, they didn't even know where I was. Nobody knew what I was doing. Nobody knew. There's a transformation from working for God to being led by God in his work. Paul worked his whole life trying to produce a holiness he could present to God. But he'd been working in the wrong way. He'd been running very fast his whole life towards pleasing God, but had, run a, had not run a single step on the right path. And believe it or not, Paul's life was both more significant and insignificant than it had ever been at the same time. He'd been chasing significance, and he didn't have to anymore. Maybe that's what you're doing. Because the minute he met Jesus, he had all the significance he ever needed. And yet, he was unknown. He'd never been more free, and at the same time, he was in slavery. Before, he was a captive to sin and to fear and to failure and to death. But now he's free. In Christ, he was free. At the same time, he was in Christ. All his, everything was Christ's a transformation from working for God to being led, God, led by God in his work. And that, that's a miracle for a good person who gets saved. Here's the third miracle. Look at verse 23. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute the church is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. There's a transformation for a good person from persecuting and destroying the gospel of grace through faith to proclaiming and defending the gospel of grace through faith. From persecuting and destroying the gospel of grace through faith to proclaiming and defending the gospel of grace through faith. Because you know what? Good people don't like grace. Beginning of Acts chapter 9, Paul had set out to kill believers. The Judaizers had come into Galatia churches to kill grace. Good people do not like grace. Saved people love it. They've been set free and they want to see more and more and more people set free. Grace says it is all of God, period. Jesus is the gospel. Believe. But good people want to come along and say, yeah, but but there's got to be more. Grace is risky. It's, it's too dangerous. Well, that's how you know you're, you're talking about it right. All who embrace grace become free indeed. Free from what? One writer says, to walk the heights without fear, free from self, free from shame, free from condemnation, free from the tyranny of others' opinions, expectations, and demands, free to obey, free to love, free to forgive others as well as ourselves, free to allow others to be who they are, different, free to live beyond the limitations of human efforts, free to serve and glorify Christ. Paul is saying, Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Are you free this morning? 
Have you heard the call, the sound of amazing grace? The sweet sound? Have you responded in faith? You can do it this morning. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, thank you for the time we've had. Thank you for the Savior, your Son, Jesus, for the grace that you offer, that you've done it all. Father, thank you that you did not diminish your holiness one bit. That you're holy and righteous and pure. And as impossible as it is for us to ever live up to that. You sent your son Jesus to be our holiness. To be our righteousness. Father, and by grace, he stepped in. He became our sin. He knew no sin, but he became our sin. Died our death. Was raised to new life. So that in him we might we might be crucified and buried and, and raised again to new life and live in him. Father, be saved, be justified before you. So, Father, I pray you'd help us to, to know that, to understand it, to, to, Father, be clear about how you save us. Reveal, be pleased this morning to reveal your Son Jesus to us. We pray the only way we can, in the name of your Son Jesus, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.